0: Hello and welcome to Within Normal Limits, Copic's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant for Copic, as well as a practicing internal medicine physician. Thank you for listening and helping us further Copic's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to Within Normal Limits. I'm really excited today uh, to have as our guest, Dr. Hahn. Dr. Hahn is the uh, chief of pulmonary and critical medicine at the University of Michigan and also the author of a book we're going to talk about called Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Talking with Patients About Lung Health. Uh, This is an area that's, I think, of, of great importance, not only because of what's been going on with COVID, a lot of heightened interest in the lungs, But more importantly, from just a general uh, quality of care, patient safety, risk management standpoint, we know that effective communication with our patients around complex issues uh, can help solidify uh, the the, the quality of those provider-patient relationships and almost certainly reduce the likelihood of adverse outcomes and lawsuits. So, Dr. Hahn, really glad you're joining us and I look forward to having this conversation with you today. A background on people because I think it's interesting. Plus, I'm just unbelievably nosy. Um, so, I uh, where where'd you grow up, and what'd you enjoy doing uh, growing up that that maybe had some influence on your wanting to go into medicine?
1: So, I grew up in southeast Idaho, uh, one of the least populous states, doesn't even have a medical school. Uh, the town where I grew up actually was somewhat interesting. It was uh, a weird mix of potato farmers, nuclear engineers. And then if you've ever spent a significant amount of time in southeast Idaho, you'll know that it has a really strong LDS community or, or Mormons. So culturally, it was an ex Extremely, somewhat, uh, uh, extremely varied and probably somewhat unexpected mix for being in a high mountain, not very populated desert community. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my mother was a nurse and I actually thought that I would never go into medicine just because of how hard she worked. She did shifts up on the floor and I just, I didn't, you know, her hours were insane and I just did, that wasn't necessarily something I wanted to emulate. But when I was in high school, one of my teachers had a son who was in medicine and she said, you know, I really think you should think about it. And so I respected her quite a bit. And so I started thinking about it. And then I had the opportunity to volunteer in the local emergency room, which I think is probably a much different experience than what people have now because. Uh, you know, because it was such a rural area, they kind of let me do everything. (laughs) And it's not like volunteering. I think what it would be, for instance, at my own university hospital where things are much more strictly regulated. So anyway, after that volunteer experience, I was pretty much hooked. I thought it was sort of the coolest thing I'd ever seen or done. So I ended up going to undergraduate at the University of Washington and then medical school at the University of Washington. uh, For listeners who aren't aware, because Wyoming Alaska, Montana, and Idaho all do not have medical schools. They all feed into the University of Washington through something called the Whammy Program. So I did my first year of medical school in Moscow, Idaho, which uh, interestingly, they they pull resources with Washington State and they do not have um, you know, a med school there. So we actually learned on cow livers and things like that, guess <laughs> they do have a med school at any rate. I ultimately wended my way to the university of Michigan for residency and then a fellowship in pulmonary critical care and ended up, you know, I always thought I would go back to the West because I enjoyed taking care of rural populations. I thought it might be fun actually to work in a small hospital in the Northwest, but I got really interested in clinical research and, um, you know, ended ended up staying and and haven't left. So, like, I guess that's sort of my my story in a nutshell.
0: That's a that's a great background, and I love the combination of the potato farmers and the nuclear engineers. And I, I'm going to let our audience know that a fun fact is that's actually how the microwaving of the potato was invented. No, I'm kidding, but that is a great uh, it is it is a great combination. And by the way, microwave a uh, cooking tip: it's a lot faster uh, than than the oven. Uh, and then, an interesting point about the mom being a nurse, seeing how hard they work. I can tell you, my my wife's a nurse, my sisters a nurse, my brother and I are both doctors, and we're like, thank God we're not nurses uh, because they work so much harder than we do. And by the way, doctors complain five times as much uh, with uh, with with less work. So shout out to the to the nurses out there, and uh, that rural uh, ER exposure. Uh, yeah enough it's it's a little bit like a va where you're probably punching several weight classes above your skill set where you're you know well maylon you you you, you're familiar right yeah you're familiar with needles let's just see if you can start this central line Yeah, maybe an iv first would be good you know before we go into the neck but uh yeah that's a that's a great way to train and you know, I, I am familiar with that whammy program, and I and I think it's great. You obviously don't want to exclude qualified people because of not having a, a state medical school, so that's a that's a great program to have. And quite honestly, I wish there were more collaboration among states. Uh, it, it's a whole another whole another topic. Um, so you are pulmonary critical care. And we'll talk a little bit more about COVID when we talk about the effects on the lungs. But uh, how was the situation at the University of Michigan, which, by the way, is one of the world-class uh, academic centers in the in the country? We're really fortunate to have such a strong uh, facility in the in the Midwest. What did you do uh, during COVID? How w- how was that affecting that whole system?
1: Yeah. So we were really at the beginning of wave one, if people can even remember back that far. And we're actually coming off the tail end of wave four now. So Michigan in general has been pretty hard hit with every wave. Uh, So we were heading into lockdown March of 2020. And I, I, I suspect, though, that my experience or our experience is not so dissimilar from everyone else, where we just knew so little about the virus in the beginning and how to protect ourselves, and so there was just a lot of fear among healthcare workers, um, but you know, at the same time, uh, COVID's been this incredible accelerator for vaccine technologies and virtual care, and and doing things differently. So it's just been a very, very kind of bizarre and unfortunately really stressful time. We uh, have seen, you know, uh, it's taken a huge toll, I I would say, on the mental health of a lot of our physicians, just uh, the amount of time spent at the hospital away from their families. We've seen a huge toll on, unfortunately, uh, female physicians in particular, because of The double whammy, for instance, Ann Arbor Public Schools uh, was closed for a year, essentially, a virtual virtual school completely. Um, And so I think pulmonary critical care as a specialty has been been hit even harder. And then, as you mentioned, I'm at an academic institution. And as I chat with some of my faculty and I learn about, a lot of people probably don't really think about how research was affected during the pandemic. we weren't able to do clinical research, but also because of supply chain issues and not being able to get into the lab, uh, people lost lab animals and whole research projects and have been put way, way, way you know, behind. And so it's been a very challenging time. I And at the same time, I actually took over as division chief in the middle of the pandemic, so in January. And so Now, as I'm hoping, we're, I'm sure we have not seen the last wave, but as we are coming to, I think, a better place of hopefully dealing with the virus with more people vaccinated, et cetera. um, I'm trying to help uh, physicians figure out how to pick up the pieces and sort out their lives. And whether that is trying to help, you know, researchers recover their projects, what additional aid, whether that's you know, emotional support. Whether you know, we even have some physicians with long haul COVID themselves. So there's a lot of right now. I'm just trying to think. There's a lot of focus on wellness and trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together for doctors.
0: Yeah, it was quite a quite an issue, uh, and and obviously it's an ongoing issue and one of the the disconnects that so many providers have is uh, a couple of years ago we have fighter jets flying over and and uh parades cheering us on and uh you know fast forward and you can choose why this happened i have my opinions as to how this uh, rather than bringing us together ripped us apart but now you have uh, some healthcare providers who have to be very low key and uh what a what a strange world it is where all you want to do is you know help Humans who are suffering and keep them keep them alive, keep their lungs functioning, which is an attempt at a segue uh, to the book that you wrote called uh, "Breathing Lessons: A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health." And I'm going to give a very brief prequel. And those of you who were of age during the '80s might know of Ann Tyler's Pulitzer Prize-winning book uh, with "Breathing Lessons." It was a novel. Uh, this is not a novel. This is a doctor's guide. Uh, to lung health. And uh, Dr. Hans talks about this as, as the most vital organ, which I think is fair, one of the big respiratory centers in the in the metro Denver area's National Jewish Hospital. And I think one of their taglines is, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters, uh, or certainly doesn't matter for very long. Uh, it takes me about seven seconds of of not breathing to go into full-on uh, panic attack. If you've ever seen me try to swim in open water competition, uh, I'll be the guy who's uh, you're reaching for the nearest kayak in a, in a full-on panic attack. Uh, but in any event, I want to go through um, some important questions about lung health, uh, communication with patients, and then obviously continue to plug your book, uh, because I think it's a great topic. And Communication with patients, talking about areas of great health importance, and and the lungs, you know, it it you know fairly or unfairly, you know, you're kind of the, um, choose your analogy, but you are the mistreated stepchild relative to the heart. You know, the cardiologists get all the glory, uh, they get all the funding, and quite honestly, I think they have really. I think they serve caviar at their conferences, and I understand you guys get Subway. Um, And and so, you know, the the lungs are overlooked, but my goodness, as you say, you know, if you can't breathe, nothing else matters. But how one communicates this with the patients, how you have those deep conversations, they don't have to be long, but they have to be something that patients can understand, that solidifies the physician-patient relationship. It helps the patients communicate with downstream referrals, helps them communicate better with their primary care providers, enhances compliance. And we have phenomenal data that good communication skills, being able to explain things to a patient, reduces the likelihood of winding up in a lawsuit. Doesn't make it impossible. Some very, very nice people get sued, uh, but it definitely reduces the risk so let's let's jump right into some of these key questions some ways we can communicate with patients and also some things that perhaps uh physicians don't know like i didn't even know that the lungs were a vital organ um so i've I've learned i've learned something um so let's talk about what's the disconnect that you've seen which what most people think about how their lungs work and what they're actually doing and and you know, why is that disconnect so so prevalent? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Gosh, you know, I could probably spend the, the next three hours talking about that. But, you know, I, you know, the book came about because I did this, there were a lot of questions at the beginning of the pandemic about ventilators. And what do ventilators do? And, and why are they not necessarily the cure-all, end-all, be-all? And why did we have a shortage of them? And uh, and so I actually had this um, fun opportunity to do another podcast, Freakonomics, and uh, we chatted about how ventilators work and how we breathe. And then an editor at Norton heard, the, heard me explain it and said, you know, there's actually no book on the market right now that explains this. And and I realized, well, this is probably why it's always so hard when I have a patient come into the office and I'm sitting there and I'm getting out my notepad and trying to explain the diaphragm and how we breathe or, and, you know, and whether for instance, they have, you know, asthma, CPD or fibrosis, whatever it is, what the problem is and how the heart works and the circulation. And it's always this huge process. And I realized that for many patients, the lungs are just a black box. And, and so I, I, I guess I don't fully know why we as physicians have done a really bad job of explaining this to patients, but I think most people have at least a rudimentary understanding of how the heart works, what happens when you have a heart attack, uh, but we've done a really bad job, and, I, and I, I think the reasons are multifactorial, but if you look historically, uh, you know, doctors were really enamored with steth- stethoscopes and blood pressure cuffs in the early 1900s, and the, the technology for things like spirometers that measure, blood, uh, measure lung function were a lot more clunky. Now they're quite easy and fancy, but at the time they were clunky. And, and you know, in the era of pre-evidence-based medicine, what physicians, you know, kind of thought and felt like doing really ruled the day. And so we had a lot of information on blood pressure and and under, ultimately figured out it's related to things like strokes. And we had studies like Framingham where you developed this evidence base. Um, and I, we just haven't had nearly as much, I think because of the slow adoption of physicians for, for, for things like spirometry, we've had just much ultimately slower uptake of getting clinical trials done, of getting that evidence basis done. And so we just don't have as much information. And then every time, for instance, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force comes out and says makes a recommendation about screening, they say, well, We don't recommend doing any kind of uh, population-based screening for lung function, but not because of negative evidence. It's because of lack of evidence. And so we just end up in this vicious cycle where we don't know anything. Nobody tests. We still don't know anything. And for me, there was this sort of uh, eureka, aha moment uh, during, during the pandemic where I started putting little bits of... information together. And we know that a lot of lung disease goes undiagnosed, but I think it's been hard, maybe hard to argue what the consequences for that are. But then we started to see things like, um, uh, for instance, uh, people that were exposed to wildfires in Oregon had increased inflammation in their lungs and how there was a huge uptick in COVID and COVID deaths just in the area that was exposed to that, suggesting to me that there's probably a lot of you know, we're not always aware, right? But there's subtle areas of lung injury that are probably predisposing us to all sorts of other bad things. It's just, we can now actually measure it or trying to understand which patients had uh, long haul COVID. And, and now we're seeing at the University of Michigan that patients beforehand probably had, some of them had abnormalities on, the cat, on their CAT scans that, that previously had not been um, detected. So when we think about, about about the lungs and why they are sort of this black box. I think in part it's because we have, as physicians haven't been paying enough attention. We haven't educated, we haven't had tools, hopefully like you know, like breathing lessons, but there's certainly others uh, out there. We just failed to, to educate the public, to educate patients. And so one of my goals with the book, I thought, well, okay, I'm having a hard time getting people to listen. So maybe if we just take the message to directly to patients and we say you know what this is this is how your lungs work help them understand and these are all the things that can go wrong and this is how they go wrong then that get, puts the power in their hands to start having um more impactful conversations with their doctors about their care as well as having more ability in their own lives to to protect themselves and preserve their health so that's a very long-winded answer to your question
0: <laughs> well it's a it's a great answer, and I think one of the things that, you know, maybe a starting point uh, in that discussion is, you know, these, you know, your lungs are, are, are a critically important organ in your body. And there's certain risks which we know can damage these and increase your likelihood of now that they've heard of COVID, you know, catching and dying of a respiratory virus. But maybe talk about how do you have that discussion about indoor, outdoor pollution, smoking, vaping? wildfire smoke exposure uh i i was did my training in denver after after medical school and denver was notorious in the early 90s for the so-called brown cloud which was you know this inversion would would trap this mass of brown smog over the city of denver and i'm out going for jogs thinking i don't think this is a health tonic for my lungs and i live in boulder now and all these massive wildfires the air, you can barely see the mountains because there's so much smoke when these fires are going on. And, and because of my OCD issues, which is a whole nother topic, I have to go out and run. Um, and I go out there and I'm literally feel like I'm coughing up a lung. So uh, how do you have the discussion about these you know, seeming, oh, yeah, I just did some inhalation. I just vaped a little bit. Uh, I just got that vitamin E oil in deep into my lungs, uh, but I just did it once. What? How do you talk to patients about how that damages their lungs? Because so that's kind of complicated.
1: Well, you know, I'm going to be super honest with you. These are not conversations we often have with patients, right? So when patients come into the office, they're normally very focused on one symptom or one complaint. How much time do we actually have to spend with patients talking about prevention? We don't. And on top of that, how much time do we spend in medical school as physicians learning about how to talk to patients about these kinds of prevention things? We don't. And and to be honest, I had to do before the pandemic and I sat down to write this book. I was certainly aware of some of the issues, but I had to educate myself and do a lot of research um, because this isn't information that physicians necessarily are are instructed in or, you know, told about how to even talk to patients about. So, to me, there's this really, so there's another really interesting piece of information that came to light before the pandemic, and it's this. So, COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is one of the most common causes or common lung diseases that we have for adults in the United States. Estimates suggest there's, say, maybe 25 to 30 million uh, individuals living with COPD, and despite miss and despite the common perception uh roughly a quarter of patients who have COPD actually never smoked so there's at least a quarter that that you know um who knows you know air pollution etc but the original thinking like when i was in medical school was that most people get to adulthood with like healthy lungs i mean we would know if they're not healthy right are we ever measuring it no but we would know right and then and then uh you know, because of things that you do in adulthood that are bad for you, like smoking or, you know, coal mining or something. Some people, you know, because these toxic exposures end up, you know, in a bad place and ultimately get diagnosed with lung disease. And that's just the way it happens. Well, it turns out uh, that there was a study that, and again, the problem is we never measure lung function in childhood or young adulthood. So how would we ever know? But but there was a study that they put some data together from a couple of studies that actually did that. They went out and measured and followed lung function over long periods of time. And the fascinating thing that they found was that half of people who ultimately developed CPD did not have accelerated lung function decline in adulthood, but rather never reached peak lung function in the first place in adulthood. And then just had sort of normal age-related decline. Unfortunately, we all lose lung function with time. It's sort of like, it's all downhill after 25. But- But to me, that's absolutely shocking. That means for millions, millions of people across the world, they are not meeting peak lung function in adulthood. Something is going wrong for a lot of people. I mean, think about all the the growth charts that we, you know, I'm a mom, I have an eight-year-old son, you know, I assess, you know, is he the 50th, 60th? Where is he? Is he falling off? You know, this is something we as pediatricians track. But we don't ever do that with lung function, and so when we think about how to preserve lung health over the lifespan, you really have to think about it in three stages. There's what happens before birth, what happens during childhood, until you get to that peak lung function at 25, and then after 25, it's all about not losing too much ground. But you will want to get everybody to like their best possible place in the first place, and that's where kind of a lot of the stuff uh, in in the book comes in. So You know, when I have a patient that I am seeing in the office and I don't know what's wrong with them, I always start with birth. And I always go back to tell me about, you know, were you preterm or not? Did you have respiratory issues as a child or not? And so we know, for instance, mothers who are exposed to air pollution, mothers who are exposed to high levels of nicotine can have, uh, you know, abnormal. the, The babies may have abnormal lung development. Uh, Premature birth, which we're now able to support babies at an earlier age, but it's also as the lungs are just, you know, some babies aren't quite at that finish line when they're born, and and that can put the lungs under under increased stress. And then during childhood, you want, you know, severe respiratory infections can impact uh, nutrition. Um, you know, we were talking about a little bit before the show started about Mediterranean diet. There's some evidence that um, that that can be helpful for the lungs and for uh, expectant moms as well. Um, and then, you know, now we've got all these new things to worry about for kids that are in middle school and beyond, like vaping and uh, and and cigarette smoke. And you know, the problem with vaping is that the most of these electronic Uh, Nicotine products are not well regulated. And so, you know, who knows when the next vitamin E is going to slip in and 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 cause massive lung injury. So um, so there's so much, you know, that that we need to be thinking about. And one of you know, one of my fears is that, again, we as physicians often don't have time. And I'm an adult. I'm an adult lung doctor. I'm not a pediatrician. So I'm never necessarily going to reach the moms and the dads and those expectant moms where they would have the opportunity to actually uh, intervene. And so that's why I I feel so strongly about getting the information from the, from the book out so that, that we can as much prevent problems as treat them.
0: Those, those are great thoughts. So you you talk about spirometry, and I'd be curious to know uh, what your views would be. So this is Eric's theory. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, I'm going to just postulate this: uh, spirometry could potentially be like the sixth vital sign, uh, pulse ox being the fifth. And is is spirometry something? that might give, you know, obviously there's an enormous amount of variance in spirometry and a lot of it is, is you know, is adaptive behavior. But once you learn how to do it uh, and administer it properly and the patients know how to do it properly, it's a pretty darn good test. So let's just assume we've gone through all of that. Uh, what do you think about the idea of spirometric measurements uh, and then perhaps if they're off the charts going in the wrong direction, saying, hey, mom, dad, do you have indoor pollution? Do you how are you smoking in the house? Do you live in Denver? You know, is your dad, Eric, and making you go hike out in the smoke and uh, maybe get a better dad? I, I don't know. I mean, what do, you, what do you think about that idea? And also, I'm a primary care doc, spirometry. I, I don't do spiros on my patients unless they're symptomatic. Uh, so maybe a, a few thoughts on that.
1: You know, I mean, when you think about all the arguments about mammograms and PSAs and things like that, we as doctors are really good about convincing ourselves not to do things. Uh, and and those arguments about when to test are always about cost benefit, right? So how much does it cost to do the test? What's the risk to the patient? What unnecessary tests might one false na- you know, false test ultimately have? Um, and and also whether the information is actionable, and all of this has gone into um, uh, the this these sort of lack of use of spirometry unless somebody is really symptomatic. The problems with that is that the lungs have quite a bit of reserve, and so you can actually have a lot going on um, before spirometry actually ever pick it up. Uh, it turns out other things like CT scans are actually um, a lot more sensitive. So. I am sure I would have, uh, you know, darts thrown at me by, you know, the American Lung Association, the American Thoracic Society, if I went out and said, oh, everybody needs, you know, lung function test every single day. But it, but again, it is also one of these, these situations where we're in this chicken and egg or vicious cycle where we don't have the information, so there's no evidence to suggest that we should do otherwise. And so, I, you know, it, it does make me wonder whether a few measurements during childhood would be a good idea so that, yes, as a mom, I could, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be a lot more mindful during the pandemic about things like um, outdoor air pollution, about, you know, even there's things like schools near freeways and anti-island policies and, you know, making sure that, that you know, gas and wood burning stoves even inside the, you know, home can actually injure, injure lung function. So, so. You know, would we all be a little bit more aware? I mean, we have. I mean, my visit, my son's pediatrician always asks me about seatbelts. So, you know, and do I have a gun in the home and is it locked up? Which I don't. But, uh, but you know, that it does make me wonder whether whether we should be. Because you know, let's be honest, it's not expensive. It doesn't cause radiation. Nobody gets poked. And what is the worst thing that could happen? If you had an abnormal spirometry in a in let's say a primary care office, they would go get sent to a to a pulmonologist, and they get it repeated, and 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 you know and then if it's you know it, a good quality test actually is really quite accurate, and then they probably would get appropriate testing. So I have a hard time really seeing seeing what the downsides are to having a much lower threshold. So right now doctors only order spirometry if there are you know overwhelming symptoms but I wonder whether we should do uh, a better job about not just assessing symptoms but also assessing risk factors. And you know if you knew that a child was premature and suffered a lot of respiratory infections you know as a, as a child and thinking about that person's overall health, maybe we as physicians should have a much lower threshold for, for, for considering that as part of like the quote unquote standard routine physical. I would say we do a lot more with with a lot less evidence.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a great study there. Do you happen to know any academic pulmonologists who might wanna put something like that together? Anybody come to mind?
1: So we actually, I'm actually currently partnering uh, with the American Lung Association and the National Institutes of Health on a really cool new study called the Lung Health Cohort. Uh, it's being uh, spearheaded by a colleague of mine at Northwestern, Dr. Ravi Callahan. but uh, essentially for the first time ever, they're recruiting young adults and getting okay. lung function tests and CT scans uh, and collecting all sorts of other information. And then we're going to follow those, informa- those individuals over time. And I think once we actually have some of that longitudinal information, we'll have a much better sense of, you know, how common, how prevalent is lung disease, lung disease that we're not picking up with spirometry and what are the ultimate consequences. And hopefully, ultimately, if we can understand that, then we can, um, you know, figure out how to intervene. I think one of the challenges has always been, well, everybody knows you're not supposed to smoke and everybody knows you're not supposed to, you know, whatever, run on a high air pollution day. So what difference would it make? And my counter argument to that is that What I tell a patient might not make any difference, but what that patient does might be different. So you know, yeah, I'm gonna tell my patient not to smoke, but if the patient knew that their lungs had already suffered significant damage from their behaviors, maybe they would actually do something differently. And and that's more of the information that we need.
0: Yeah, no, I like that. And I think part of that conversation, I know you can just in your mind instantly picture these curves, but when you show those curves, Uh, the lung as you lose that reserved capacity and then as you age where you just fall off the cliff showing patients, gosh, here's where you are, here's where you're going to be. I used to, back when I actually spent time with my patients before I spent my time with my electronic health record, but back when I could actually provide health care, one of the conversations I would have with patients when they were smoking would be, you know those old people you see walking around the mall, towing the uh, the oxygen tank on the wheelers, with that thing up their nose in the tube, shuffling along. I don't think you want to be that person. And those people, uh, when they were your age, were just like you. Uh, they had lungs that were doing okay, and they were being exposed to these uh, to these toxins. Uh, so, and you're right about lung disease having just, uh, unfortunately, it's viewed a little bit uh, like this and grossly unfairly as lung disease is a disease of sin. It's smokers, it's people who deserve this, and lamentably, uh, you know, billionaires' kids aren't working in the coal mine, so it's a disease of poverty and as a society. Uh, I would argue we haven't taken care of our most vulnerable very well, and we have a lot of working class people who have been subjected to high risks. And uh, I think all of that conspires against getting funding for lung disease. And perhaps if we think of, sure, smokers are affected by lung disease more than non-smokers, also by heart disease. By the way, and cancer, we still treat those. Uh, but my gosh uh wildfires you know that's not the fault of a kid who lives in oregon or indoor pollution that's not the fault of a kid whose school is set next to a highway so how do we how do we shift that idea that lung disease is not just uh oh yeah they deserve this they should have known better they shouldn't have been sniffing that popcorn all the dang time um which, by the way, I think used to cause lung disease. Uh, but anyway, uh, wh- what, do, what do we do here to get to get funding for this really important uh, condition?
1: You know, I, that's really the million dollar question that I've been beating my head against the wall since the beginning of the pandemic. So you're absolutely right. The problem is lung disease is, is viewed as someone else's problem. It is not my problem. Despite the millions of Americans that suffer from lung disease, we, it tends to be those who are, are marginalized those who live in rural areas, socioeconomically disadvantaged or or otherwise or you know they smoked It's you know it's their fault the the reality is that that there's uh, that uh, that lung disease impacts first of all it impacts a lot more people than that you can be an, a healthy non-smoker and get lung disease uh, lung cancer and in fact lung cancer kills more women than breast, uterine and ovarian cancers combined Um, But we just, I think, you know, part of it is we haven't um, probably been loud enough. Part of the problem is that the patients haven't really felt empowered to advocate for themselves because of some of the social stigma. But I think what we've seen, what I was praying we would see with COVID is that we would all realize this is not everyone else's problem. This is our problem. We have 11 million Americans with long haul COVID. Uh, we uh, ha- Lung disease was the number one cause of death in the United States last year. That, that's when you combine all the stuff that was already going on before COVID plus all the COVID-related lung deaths. So, you know, one of the things that's been really frustrating to me is when you examine uh, a lot of the appropriations that have come through and, and everyone from the WHO to, you know, Biden's prior COVID panel have said, oh, we we are going to come up with the the comprehensive pandemic preparedness plan because we all know the next pandemic is coming. Not a single one of those plans has adequately addressed, you know, we need to better understand lung injury. We need to figure out how to help injured lungs repair. We need a better solution than the mechanical ventilator, which all doctors know can actually cause lung injury, Although it's a necessary evil when we have patients with 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 acute lung failure, so I it is it has been my sincere hope, and I have not given up that that this would be a bit of a wake up call. I mean, when you think about all the people that contracted COVID, and we've been sitting back back thinking, why is it that some patients get so sick and other patients don't? This is such a huge mystery, and. I, it is my personal belief that that some of this is explained by um, pre-existing lung disease that people didn't know they had. I uh, know of one patient in particular who was d- diagnosed with COPD only after she was hospitalized for for COVID, and they were trying to figure out why she was so sick. So, I, I am sure that that is is at least uh, part of it. So, I am personally. Uh, doing everything I can, working with foundations like the American Lung Association, the CBD Foundation, the American Thoracic Society, to push on Capitol Hill uh, to to better fund this problem. We can no longer use as an excuse that just because somebody smoked, et cetera, this is something that we as a society can afford to ignore. I I don't think we can afford to ignore it. Uh, anymore, but if you have other ideas, I, I am all ears because I, I really do sometimes feel like I'm banging my head against the
0: wall. <laughs> well, I I think it's a groundswell of people like you who are thoughtful and academically trained and try to get the message out. And uh, a a potentially poor analogy, but it's the best I can do uh, is uh, thinking about uh, brain disease and strokes versus heart attacks. Now I went to med school in the in the Started in the early '80s, and you know, strokes strokes were kind of shrug your shoulders, uh, but we'll 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 treat treat the ever living heck out of those heart heart attacks, and and we'll train everybody all hands on decks, and seconds matter, and that has gradually over time uh, reached the point to where now even the lay public understands. That you know, the start of a stroke is not all right. Let's just wind up and see how catastrophic this becomes. It's a get in there and intervene and do something. And now we, you know, have stroke training as a big part of ACLS. I just recertified in ACLS for I don't know my twenty-fifth time, um, and uh, there's way more emphasis on on stroke. And I think that's because of advocates in that space. Uh, hopefully. Uh, advocates such as yourself who are, who are thoughtful and well-spoken can, can get lungs uh, more, uh, more in the forefront.
1: You know, my, to be honest, it's my, one of my greatest fears is that if we, if we don't, um, you know, we, we simply won't be prepared for, you know, the next thing uh, to, to come around the corner, whatever that next, uh, that next respiratory pandemic is. And Unfortunately, I think it's only getting worse, right? So we're probably going to have more pandemics. But also when you look at things like climate change and wildfires, et cetera, et cetera, the threats to our lung health are um, increasing daily. And in fact, you know, I am so much more mindful now than I was before the pandemic. So for the pandemic, you know i I like to garden, so you know, when I got into the garden, I, it always annoys me when I come back and I, you know, whatever got dirt underneath my fingernails and it's a pain to clean up. So I'm very good about wearing garden gloves. Right. But I mean, think about all the things that we do. We, we, we clean up dusty spills or mold or your dirty basement or your, you know, your garage where who knows, you know, if your garage is like mine probably has some mice in it (laughs) Um, and, you know, and we probably wouldn't give it a second thought. And, now, because we've got masks so much more readily available, I, I think about it more. And so you, know, you can't really wash your lungs out the way I would wash my hands off after I go into the garden. So, you know, one of the, the pieces of research that I do is I actually um, do take whole lungs out and, and we uh, flash um, freeze them inflated so that I can actually study their their actual structure because if you can imagine it once it deflates it's like impossible to study what size it was so uh, but what's always amazing to me is that even for quote-unquote healthy lungs there is so much black that just builds up over time and you know if you think about it we we patients are always amazed when I show them their CAT scans and they're like what's this what's this I'm like "Well, that I don't know Who knows? you small you, you inhaled a bug a couple years ago and it's like entombed in there I don't know there's like there's like You know, this is like, you know, you point out to them all these little scars that I'm trying to to follow over time. But we don't see that. Right. We never see it. And so I don't think people realize that while the body has some ability to break down stuff that we breathe in, it's it's very imperfect. And that stuff just stays and it accumulates uh, over time. So our our best our our best line of attack there really is prevention.
0: Yeah, I think that's. a a key point and again it does take time to have that conversation but as you know we do talk about seat belts uh and you know inhaling uh right yeah well you're working in the garden you know what's in the soil um you know these these atypical mycobacteria or or, uh, among other things these fungi so you get this recurrent you know bronchopulmonary inflammatory who knows what kind of thing so uh, yeah, no, abs- absolutely. In the in the cleaning out the house and the baby, which, by the way, is why I never clean, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> keeps the uh, keeps the dust there. So but all that's important. So I think if I'm hearing you right, it's not unreasonable as part of that safety conversation and discussion, just as you're saying, eat healthfully so your coronary arteries are clean as a whistle. Uh, let's watch what we expose our lungs to, uh, so that your lungs, uh, don't get damaged or start these, uh, these inflammatory cascades and cycle, which, which, which lead to damage. Is that a, is that a fair statement?
1: Oh yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, and there's like, we can, the list goes on and on and on of things that we could talk about it and it's all in the book. I mean, radon, huge cause of, of lung cancer in the United States outside of, of smoking. Everyone's house should be. Uh, you know, uh, tested for uh, radon, um, wood burning stoves. I grew up in Idaho and everybody had a wood burning stove and I didn't really think about it. But when you look even so the EPA, fortunately, has has increased the the, stri- the standards of how much smoke can actually go into the room. But even when you look at the absolute strictest EPA standards now for the newest, cleanest models, um, there's still a lot of particulate matter going into the air. So, you know, I know some people probably not may not have a choice, but finding, trying to find the most, you know, the kind of cleanest brewing model, uh, you know, uh, that you can, there's just all these things that at least, uh, you know, I used to mix cleaning. I didn't, no one ever explained to me, like, you know, my mom would throw, you know, go clean the bathroom, you know, and and had me like a pile of chemicals, you know, and and nobody really ever explained to me probably shouldn't be mixing things. And now, the you know EPA has a list of like safer choice products, um, you know, so that you're not necessarily breathing in some of these these harmful uh, chemicals, particularly VOCs, and and so there's just a lot, you know, low VOC paints, etc. There's just so much that uh, you know the thing that I I try to tell people is just be aware. Just try it. if you smell something and it smells really bad, you probably shouldn't be breathing it. <laughs> just to, you know just try you know if you're kicking up dust, you probably don't want to be breathing it. it's you know, there's a website airnow.gov. You can look and see what the air quality days. Maybe that's not the day to train for your triathlon. You know, if it's a really bad air quality day. So just, you know, we can all be a lot more mindful of our surroundings.
0: Does does burning candles indoor adversely affect the uh, air quality that you're aware of?
1: You know, I tried to find some data on that and couldn't. But given how much smoke mine seems to put out, I've been trying to be uh, you know, careful. I know there are some that are probably more cleaner burning than others. Uh, you know, I, most people aren't burning candles 24 seven. So I, I, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not huge and there's definitely, you know, some, some nice aesthetics, but I do try to be careful. And, you know, uh, you know, if I walk into the room, my son seems to love candles that if I walk into the room and it seems like I, you know, I can barely see, it's like, well, it probably shouldn't be doing that too often.
0: So I have a last question, and then we'll wrap it up. So I, I live and practice in the state of Colorado, and though I'm not a uh, a particular user of marijuana, you know, pot is legal. I don't think we can call it pot or weed anymore. I think we have to call it cannabis to be correct. But irrespective, that, I grew up calling it weed, so I'm calling it weed. So a lot of people I know uh, smoke weed. A lot of patients smoke, they get high occasionally. And I always say, look, I don't know what the threshold is. I know 100% that inhaling burning particulate matter can't possibly be good for your lungs. Do Are you aware of any data on the toxicity, the lung toxicity of uh occasional let's just let's use an example occasional marijuana smoker whatever that would be i don't know what occasional let's say twice a week uh, three times a week and effects on the long and predisposition to other conditions because of that
1: so those studies believe it or not have been really hard to do um because the only way to know for sure would be to do like a randomized trial where i say okay you group of people don't smoke anything else but you can smoke marijuana you group of people, you know, don't smoke marijuana. Let's just see what happens when you smoke every day for the next 30 years. And studies like that just don't exist. Some of the studies that we have done have been among groups of individuals who we've been falling for tobacco smoke. And the problem there is that there seems to be this healthy smoker effect where it's only the, the quote unquote healthier individuals that seem to be smoking the marijuana and which would then make you think, okay, marijuana somehow improves your lungs. But I think it's this confounding but because of observational studies where no one, if something is making you sick, you're going to stop doing it. If you're not feeling well from a respiratory perspective, you're going to stop smoking stuff. And so it ends up, the association makes it look like, oh, all the people that have good lung function are, are, are smoking marijuana. So the studies have been actually very difficult to do and very difficult to prove that over the long-term smoking marijuana. I think we also have to remember that marijuana smoking patterns are different for most people, not everybody, but for most people, marijuana is more of an occasional thing as opposed to like a daily thing that, uh, that you would do. The way you smoke marijuana is a little different. But, you know, what I tell patients is, again, as you said, from a very common sense perspective, it is no, why would you know, burned compounds going, you know, going into your lung that will probably never get cleared uh, be a great idea. It just, you know, so I, you know, uh, I just tell my patients that if they, you know, want to use cannabis products, I would prefer they not be inhaled. There's a lot of other ways of, 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 you know, if you want to be, you know, using cannabis, there's a lot of other ways of doing it right now. So that, so that's just, you know, it's, it's an area that's been really hard to study, but that's just been my general advice for patients.
0: Excellent. So this part of the podcast is sponsored by Betty Crocker Brownies. Uh, brownies is how you should get your wheat. So um, Dr. Hahn, that's, that is uh, great information. Uh, I, I think that we'll wrap it up there with uh, knowing that, you know, lungs are obviously mission critical to daily life. You've outlined some, some really important areas, common sense things that cause exposure risk and how to communicate those to patients as well as you know perhaps some uh, policy changes that might be valuable at the national level and maybe the way we get those done is uh, more education of our patients, a little bit of groundswell of uh, people saying, "Hey, I kind of like to breathe too. I would like not to have my lungs ravaged by a virus because the air is dirty and set me up for these. So what would be your uh, well, let me ask you this. first of all, where where do interested people get breathing lessons, a doctor's guide to lung health? Tell us where we where we find that. And we'll we'll put that in the in the show notes. Um, and then I'll give you a, a last, a, a last uh, word to wrap things up.
1: All right. Well, thanks for asking. So uh, it's available from every uh, major book retailer, whoever your favorite one is, whether that's Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Walmart, Target, et it's, it's It's at most of the major uh, retailers. I also have a spot on my uh, website, drmalenhan.com. We actually also have retailers in uh, uh, UK and the rest of Europe. So if people are listening from across the pond, it is also I, a few translations are in the works, but I haven't seen any. So it's probably going to be in English, uh, but uh, but it's it's uh, it's pretty readily available.
0: Well, outstanding. Thank you for joining us. And I really appreciate your insights and your expertise in this and the work that you first of all, that you did during COVID and the work that you're doing to uh, help keep people educated about lungs.
1: I had a really great time. And, and like I said, I my, really my goal with with writing the book and doing podcasts like this is really to uh, empower patients and hopefully, you know, make the lives of everyone
0: better. All right. Great. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Scambotti, a colorectal surgeon and medical director of Copic, thanking you for being a listener. We hope you find Within Normal Limits to be interesting and informative as we at Copic continue with new ways to bring you content relevant to our mission. Please email us at wnlpodcast at copic.com with show ideas or topics you would like to see addressed in future episodes of Within Normal Limits, Navigating Medical Risk. Also, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss any of our content. And while you're at it, please give us a rating if you enjoyed our show.